Your art is the prettiest art of all the art. Welcome to Magic Camp, everybody. Um, this is Paul. Hello, it's Ben. And this is a podcast for anybody interested in art, power, and with a little bit of extra time after school. Ben, how you doing? Doing good. Yeah? Holding up all right? Yeah, holding up okay. I mean, making plans. So that feels nice for the future. Of, and we're starting to see some people, like, hanging out with... The kids are hanging out with neighbor friends, and we're kind of opened up to small hangouts, so that's pretty good. And we're going nice. to, we're probably going to Louisiana in a few weeks, so. That'll be fun. Yep. And it's nice, I mean, I've got, I'm sitting next to a, uh, 32 seedlings, which are about ready to go on the ground, and it's the time of year when it's really nice to especially at night at sunset to go skate so it's yeah it, it's nice huh? i'm doing pretty good and then cool. doing uh you know some interesting art stuff that's keeping me engaged but yeah nice good um well that's good to hear i am doing okay myself i've been excited to present this new topic here a little bit I had some trepidation, um, which I'll get to in a little while, uh, about why that is with, with touching this topic and approaching this, because I think it's something that can be easily mishandled um, in the hands of uh, you know somebody who is maybe pushing a, a certain agenda, which I don't, I don't necessarily think that I have any expert knowledge on this subject. Um, it's something that I would say is important to me for, to some extent in that it was formative at an early age. Um, and so coming back to it now has been, um, you know, both refreshing and kind of, I'm reminiscing a little bit on, on the way I was thinking and feeling when I was 20 years old or 21, when I first kind of encountered, um, this person and this topic, um, and thinking about how it's changed and evolved over the years. Um, and there's definitely some, some shifts that have happened, but I've been trying to kind of um, generate the same enthusiasm and see it through 21-year-old eyes, if that's possible. Um, and I, I won't leave you in suspense for any longer, but the topic for today is kind of a dual subject. Um, but the, the root or the main thing I want to talk about or person is the great St. Francis of Assisi. Um, and our secular heathen listeners need not immediately turn off their their podcast app um, because it's not going to just all be about Francis as this, you know, devotional hero, um, but as a person who was deeply influential from a cultural, artistic, um, even social perspective. Um, and that's, you know, not necessarily uh, a, you know, an unknown sort of perspective on St. Francis, but if you hear his name, you probably tend to associate it with, you know, just levels of, of piety in the Catholic Church and all these different things. Um, ben, are you familiar at all with uh, St. Francis? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Probably mostly sure. through you. But right. I, I like Frank. Um, yep. I know he's good with animals. Uh, and he is good with animals, right? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. my, the hospital that Ruth, Ruth was born at, had a, I think it was called Saint. It is called Saint Francis, and there was a big statue of him out front. Right. Yeah. So there's still hospitals, schools, orphanages being named after Saint Francis. His his legacy lives on, um, and for good reason because he was a pretty pretty amazing dude. And I want to kind of get into why that is, but also why he had such a profound effect on the society that he was a part of. Um, and I chose Francis this week because. In contrast to some of the, the artists that we've explored uh, in previous weeks, or myself, Ben, you've done more of um, kind of broader systemic things and, and with the futurists and different movements and of that sort of thing, um, where I've kind of focused on individuals. And Francis, um, I think he's maybe a uh, subversion of the, the model that we've looked at so far, which would be the kind of tragic artist 
who is smothered and subsumed by the brutal system that they were a part of, right? Mm-hmm. So Van Gogh or Caravaggio and the, these people who who did everything they could to uphold some level of integrity or uh, were just kind of um, chewed up and swallowed out or chewed up and spat out. Um, and we can look at them as, as these kind of tragic figures who, who taught us something after their lives were over. Um, but Francis actually had a pretty amazing legacy, even within his life, um, in a time when, uh, it was hard to, to, for any message to trans transmit any longer than, you know, the, the village that you lived within, he had a, he had a worldwide, um, sort of appeal. And that's kind of an amazing thing to happen. And a lot of people um, credit Francis, and this is the other reason why I wanted to talk about him, as the figure who lit the spark of the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked last week about, or not last week, but with Caravaggio, we talked about kind of the, the tail end of the Renaissance with the high, the high Renaissance and, um, you know, the Baroque and all of the the sort of excess of that movement. And I referred to what was going on in Rome at the time as basically a propaganda blitz that was meant to kind of counteract the counter-reformation. And so it was this huge economic, just like opportunity for artists and for, you know, patrons and all these different people. Whereas the early Renaissance was, was something totally different. And, uh, even just over the course of 300, 400 years, um, it, it changed pretty radically. And I think it's interesting to actually look at the early Renaissance to see what it was and, and it, you know, kind of take away some of those stuffy uh, kind of highbrow connotations that it has. Um, so that being said, talking about vast kind of swaths of time, you know, time periods, medieval, Renaissance, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, inevitably is going to lead to some level of generalization, which I'm aware of, and I'm not a historian, I'm not an art historian. So I don't have quite that detailed, detailed level of information that's going to be super factual or super useful. I, I think this is more interesting as like a consideration of uh, kind of the relationship between the individual and his society, right? And mm-hmm. Francis kind of being one of the first people, um, you know, after the Middle Ages to to really kind of model what it was like to. Uh, to embody a sort of humanistic spirit and uh, for that that behavior and that sort of worldview to have an effect on the society around them, right? And examining the, the structures of power that were at play at the time is kind of one of the only ways that you can really understand Francis and understand why it, his radical action was so important, right? Um, so... His life. I just need to give a brief brief bio. Actually, sorry, I jumped ahead here. The other thing I want to talk about in addition to Francis is the kind of art side, right? Which would be, the, uh, and I'm jumping ahead here, but the artist I want to focus in particular on is Giotto. Um, have you heard of Giotto? Are you familiar with him? I love Gelato. Right. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is something different, but... Yes, Yes, I know this. Um, mm-hmm, he's, a, he's a big deal. Right. And after doing some digging, it's, um, you know, not surprising to find that there is some speculation about whether Giotto is actually the person who is solely responsible for the, the fresco cycle that he became famous for, which was the life of St. Francis. But we're just going to go with the, with the idea that he did it, for sure. Right. Sure. Um, because the predominant understanding is that he did. And I'll get into the specifics of that aesthetic, uh, why is he, he's significant from an aesthetic standpoint, but Giotto is considered the first Renaissance pa- painter in many ways. Um, the kind of the, the, who ushered in the proto-Renaissance um, in the late 12th century. So Francis was born in, of course, Assisi. His name wasn't actually Francis, though which seems to be a recurring theme with these famous Italian people is that their name that we know them for wasn't actually their name. It was a nickname that was given to them later. Um, but his, he was born of a fairly high, high standing family. His father was a merchant who spent a lot of time in France. And that was part of the reason why he became known as St. Francis because his father 
brought back a lot of French influence um, back to their family. And Francis was very taken with this kind of the cosmopolitan uh, aristocratic uh, spirit of, of Provence and of France. Mm-hmm. So one thing in particular, and, and this is a thing that probably doesn't get enough play with Francis, was that before he became this kind of religious ascetic and this you know, visionary kind of saint-like person, he was two things. One, he was, he fancied himself a troubadour. You know what a troubadour is? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So there were kind of, uh, you know, an early version of the guys who go from town to town and, and sing folk songs. Picture like Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, some kind of band like that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm just kidding. They're, they were a, they were a French poet, right, who wandered the streets, went from village to village, and basically sang love poems um, and just kind of blew everybody away with their sort of countercultural emphasis on love and uh, good vibes. They were just going everywhere spreading good vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Francis was very taken with this. They were, for the most part, completely secular. They were not affiliated with the church in any way. And while they weren't necessarily antagonistic to the church, they represented something that was very much outside of it at the time, which was this interpersonal uh, chemistry, this kind of chemical unabashed love, right? Of just like, wow, human beings are so beautiful. We just need to look into each other's eyes and and sing to each other all the time. Like that wasn't something that was happening in the dark ages. If you can, if you can imagine, right? So the troubadours were uh, a short lived, but influential group that influenced Francis. They were actually kind of wiped out by uh, one of the different movements of the crusades, not short after, not long after Francis's life. So they didn't last long, but they lived on through Francis in many ways. So not only was he a troubadour or fancied himself a troubadour, he wanted to go to war. So he was this rich kid who liked poetry and girls and convertibles and uh, beach volleyball, and he wanted to go and fight in the war, right? So he was pretty much your classic rich kid, you SoCal rich kid with, you know, slicked back hair and picking up all the all the babes, right? Which is a common kind of origin story for these saint people that you'll kind of see. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes to war. Um, Joe, one little battle gets instantly wounded. Um, <laughs> just picture him running out onto the battlefield and just spraining his ankle immediately. <laughs> um, and has, you know, is kind of greeted in the hospital by some kind of spiritual vision, right? To have a, a conversion, a sort of radical renunciation of, of worldly things, of wealth, of all of his status and pri- privilege, of violence, all those different things. So he goes back to Assisi, a changed man, hardly a hero, um, and starts working for his, his pop, for his pop-pop, um, for his running his textile business as a kind of merchant out of Assisi selling, you know, jeans. Um, and he's, he's not having it. He's not into it. He's like, dad, I'm a dancer. Let me, <laughs> let me live. Let me, let me love. You want and to do not... ballet? <laughs> exactly. Um, he's the original Billy Elliot. Um, and so Francis very quickly kind of starts rocking the boat. He says he wants to start building churches all over the place. And one thing he does is he takes the profit from one of his dad's sales and uses it to build a church in the countryside outside of Assisi. Um, and that was a huge, you know, act of disobedience. His father locks him up in a little cell inside their house. One thing leads to another. Um, and Francis eventually renounces his, his patronage, renounces his father, his worldly kind of connections, strips butt naked in the middle of Assisi, um, and, and makes a grand spectacle of himself, basically, um, abandoning his worldly, uh, possessions. Right. Nice. So you're probably thinking right now that 
that's not necessarily unique for a religious figure to renounce worldly things, right? Francis wasn't the first person to become an ascetic, mm-hmm. right? It was it was very much a you know a tradition within within Christianity, but probably the primary difference between him and say the desert fathers was probably that spirit of what he learned from the troubadours, which was that the purpose of his solitude of his renunciation was not some, uh, some purity, right. Some purification of, of the, the individual self, but of, but of a connection with nature and with other human beings. Right. So he would go out into the countryside just with whatever clothes he had in his back. First, first beggar he would see, he would just give him his clothes. Right. Or he would just, um, give them whatever he had, walk back naked and waiting to figure out a way to get some clothes again. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually starts developing a following, um, because who doesn't want to follow a guy like that who, uh, is running around in a, a hair shirt is what it's called. Um, but he, he does have this charisma that people are drawn to and that is completely radical and outside of what, what's happening, um, you know, elsewhere in the world, which is, which is feudalism is kind of making its last dying breaths. Um, and you know, obviously poverty is widespread everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Francis quickly gathers quite a bit of steam, um, as a, uh, sort of religious ascetic, but also kind of a charismatic speaker. And, and he, cause he did have that, that poet's charm as well. Um, and so quickly develops a, a following 12 or so different, um, apostles, one might say, um, one thing leads to another and we don't need to get into all the details, but this is one of the most important things about Francis. And it's often overlooked is that he was very quickly put in, um, in contact with the Pope, right? So it didn't take long for him to find his way into the halls of power of the Vatican. Um, and if it weren't for that, there's no St. Francis. We don't know who St. Francis is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize the fact that, you know, I'm not trying to say, wow, look at what one person can do to change the world. All you have to do is just go and be yourself and, and you will, you know, make a difference, make a change. Mm-hmm. There's very much, you know, you can really kind of linger on the fact that Assisi was 30 miles from Rome. Right. And to be within the, within the vicinity of the most powerful institution of the, of the Western world, you know, that's not a coincidence that, that his story eventually ended up getting told. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's, but it speaks to the ubiquity of, of ideology at the time, right. Which was that the, the church was the one, you know, arguably the one place where, where truth was disseminated, right. Or, or where information was spread. Mm. And it just, it all it took was one person to subvert the narrative of what was being hap- what was happening in the world to s- start a sort of wildfire. Right. Um, so well, what am I skipping over here? Um, so, Oh, one thing to note about the Pope, the Francis's meeting with the Pope is that it also could very well not have happened, which was he goes in and this is something that happened all the time would be a different order of religious sort of, you know, borderline zealots, ascetics would go in and try to get authorization of their, their different, their order. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and most of them would be dismissed as heretics, just kind of, you know, there's no difference between a, a saint and a, and a, a peasant at some point, right. The only distinction is who gets the blessing of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but the Pope, after nearly sending Francis and his bald brothers away, um, has a dream about Francis holding the church on his back, literally like, you know, carrying the church on his back. So mm-hmm. he takes that to mean, we've got to give Francis, you know, the keys here, or at least we've got to let him, let him do his thing. So he, the, the Franciscan order is, is authorized and it quickly becomes, you know, something that is taking root all over Europe. Um, Francis lives for about 20 more years doing this and that, traveling all over the place, going to the Middle East, um, 
you know, getting in shipwrecks, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff, preaching to birds, taming wolves, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and that's, you know, that's the gist of Francis's life. It's not a very long life necessarily. Um, but it's really what kind of happened in the 50 to hundred years after it, that, that is significant in terms of how his life went on to become what it was, right. Or, or went on to become, um, the model that it was. And so it coincides with, like I was saying before, um, some pretty rapid changes or pretty significant changes in the economic social order at the time, which is, you know, primarily a moving away from social or not socialism, um, feudalism, um, towards a more concentrated kind of industrial model, e- economical model, right. Oriented around the big cities mm-hmm. or oriented around, you know, Florence and Milan and Naples and these different places. And that's happening all over Europe. Um, and okay. So I need to pause. I've been talking too too quickly. That was just to kind of get us up to speed with the kind of connection between Francis and the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you familiar with, um, any of the art that came before the Renaissance? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How would you, could you maybe describe it if it comes to mind, even in terms of, you know, visually what it looks like, or even the titles that it, that it has? I guess I, I just think of especially iconography of saints and church figures and especially Mm -hmm. flat and decorative type of art. Um, right. That doesn't have any of the technical mechanisms of like, uh, very much shading or definitely no perspective construction, but yeah, flat and arranged. And they really, uh, really didn't know how to paint kids. So they, the kids always look like little monkeys or <laughs> like little aliens. Um, it took them a long time to figure that out yeah. <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, that's exactly right. Those are some of the, excuse me, the defining features of what would typically be called Byzantine art. Um, and, I think Byzantine art is pretty cool, pretty dope. I would mm-hmm. generally rather look at a Byzantine painting than at a high Renaissance painting, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. So it's it's this very flat visual plane that is less about the human figure or the uh, emotion being expressed than it is about the, the symbols and the relationships being expressed, mm-hmm. right? So you have... Um, you know, if, if Christ is, he has his ring around his head, he wears a certain color of, of shirt, um, because they wore shirts back then. Everybody knows that. Um, and you have up, up in the the left corner, you have the, the Holy spirit. Then you have, you know, down below you have these different things. So it was meant to represent a sort of symbological map. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and more important than that, a, a hierarchy of spirit and matter spiritual versus natural and was meant to reinforce a certain cosmology, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which can be defined, you know, pretty, pretty, um, you know, clearly by the, the theology of the time, right? By the different thinkers and the people who were considered, um, if there even were any thinkers at the time, right? Who, who do you know from that period? Hardly anybody. That's why it's considered the dark ages because there's, so little documentation of what people were saying and thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. But that does in many ways represent, um, how people related to, to the spiritual realm, which was in complete subservience to it all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So that the, the earth was, was a sort of minefield of, of spiritual mistakes to avoid. Right. And, and was completely subservient in every way to the divine order. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whereas Francis, right, represents a reversal of that completely in his life. And, and even though he was this, you know, deeply pious religious figure, his, his uh, spirituality was one that was very much rooted in, in humanity and in the physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty radical at the time. And you, you could argue that he was you know, a savant in some respect for having even 
tried to do this or tried to, um, you know, live out a certain, a life this way. Um, and so they needed to represent that change, that shift, or, you know, this is where it becomes a kind of symbiotic flow of, of art influencing culture and culture influencing art and where the, the kind of wildfire begins to spread in the way that I'm trying to portray here. So all these peasants, all these rural folk are moving to the cities. They can't read. They can't write. They're functionally illiterate uh, and yet need some kind of religious education in some way. And you've heard me talk about this on the Caravaggio episode, but this was that in its kind of origin, in its more pure form, which was that these people wanted to see it, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted to see what it looked like to, you know, to, to see the stories from the Bible, to see the, the stories of St. Francis, right? Mm-hmm. Who was the first person, the first lay person to ever be portrayed in art for the large part, right? Who wasn't mm-hmm. a biblical figure, but was a real person. Mm-hmm. And so the artists of the time, aside from their, uh, you know, t- traditional subjects of, you know, the, the biblical figures and the, and the Old Testament figures, we're looking either to Francis, right, depicting the life of Francis, or going all the way back to antiquity and modeling uh, certain biblical figures off of models of antiquity, right? So traditional Greeks, Greek sculpture and even, you know, Roman painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you seeing what I'm saying here? Yeah. So... The early Renaissance artists are looking for the life of St. Francis and the, the uh, human body as it's portrayed in Greek and Roman uh, sort of art and putting it into the frames, right? Into frescoes and building in physical space, like you said, uh, a more three-dimensional portrayal of, of space, um, emotion, pathos, a more kind of vibrant use of color, um, emphasis on actual facial features that were distinct and not completely all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this again is a, a signal to the people, to the viewer looking at it, um, that humanity matters, right. And that they actually matter and that they're not separate and, and constantly in kind of uh, should be cowering beneath the, the weight of the spiritual realm, right? And so, you know, the Renaissance, in one of its most basic definitions, um, has been equated with the discovery of the world and of humankind, right? So it's humanity discovering itself, so to speak, right? Mm. And so Francis, you can make a pretty convincing case that he was the first person to do that and that he discovered the people around him. He discovered the natural world around him and inspired artists and in turn people to pay closer attention to their, to their physical lives and, and to the connection between matter and spirit as opposed to the opposition of those things. Hmm. So of course it takes not long for that to become a, uh, you know, something different in the hands of, of once it becomes a, you know, a product and, and something that can, the church can use as a form of further control and of gathering economic, economic power. But in its, in its origins, it's a pretty, it's a pretty radical shift. So that's, um, that's the gist of it. And there's not a whole lot left to it other than that, but it's, um, so Giotto is, is kind of you know, agent patient zero for, for Renaissance painting. And I'm lucky enough to have seen the cycle, the fresco cycle of the life of St. Francis. In fact, I got a notification yesterday on my phone from, you know, when it it does the kind of time, uh, warp thing six years ago today, I was in Assisi, um, which, which is a pretty cool coincidence. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And, And I'm not quite sure, how to bring it around or into this moment. Um, other than to say that I think it, you know, serves as a kind of 
model, a sort of test case of, of um, you know, maybe a more hopeful representation of what it would look like for a person's life to actually have some impact on, on the kind of oppressive forces that, um, that exist around them. Um, what, what comes to mind when you hear all this? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was just searching for analogies either, um, of a person who would, uh, inspire that type of movement today, or, or maybe even an artist who could, uh, give life to it and what the analogy would be mm-hmm. in today's world. And yeah, I'm not sure yet. Um, I'm grasping right. around for it, but sure. I mean, well, that's, that's maybe one of the things I was trying to get at earlier is that it's, it's probably a lot harder, um, and, and probably maybe a little bit impossible and, and to linger on the fact that, you know, power was so centralized that that was, you know, a more ready instrument for the spreading of, of something that was potentially good. Mm -hmm. Right. So when everything is so decentralized, how, how could you possibly find a way to have as much influence as this one person did? Um, so yeah, yeah, I I've been thinking lately just about um how like fractured I, I don't I'm not trying I'm not trying to say this like I'm not trying to moralize about this but like how fractured um society is just in that uh so many different groups just say within American culture speaking completely different languages which right. may, maybe is fine like and part of the issue is mean needing to uh have someone who is not going to understand me like uh accept my views or like the things i like things like that when in fact it's a huge country and there's uh yeah there's just like massive amounts of division and separation and people are speaking completely different languages so i yeah i I can't see anything memeing that way or, or going through there's no monolithic culture really to carry through. And um, especially, too, like all those different groups are going to have different sources of authority and places that they trust, which is, you know, people are having a hard time dealing with the fact that you can't you can't just have one source of truth. You know, MSNBC mm-hmm. is not is only going to be a source of truth for a small portion of people or Fox News or anything like that. And. It's maybe, I think, in the past 20 years, we were uh, under the illusion that we were coming towards a consensus of authority that you can just, like, just look something up and find the answer. And, um, you know, coming to find out and becoming disillusioned with the fact that, no, you can't. You know, you can't just go Google something and get an answer that you're going to buy. Like, you, you still have to receive information from sources you trust, which is really done on a person by person basis. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I believe what this person is saying because I've, I've been, you know, listening to them for years and, and I've established that trust and they point me to this source. I can build a connection of trust with that person, but it's still like a highly, you know, communally driven, uh, way of relating information and authority. Um, and we're nowhere nearer than we were at any other point in history or, or maybe right. further away from like just having one source of truth on the internet, you know? Sure. Right. Of course. Um, you know, and, and of course I may be even overstating a little bit and a lot of people could contend with the definition of, of Francis as the sole influence of the Renaissance. That's, you know, it's an absurd thing to say, right? Um, I'm aware that of that, but just as, like I said, a sort of thought experiment. Um, but there are a lot of people who would, who would argue that the Renaissance had nothing to do with anything spiritual whatsoever. Um, and that, and that it was a, a number of other thinkers and, and writers who, who made it happen. Um, or, or, you know, how do you even, how do you even, come to a consensus on what the Renaissance actually was. It's a, it's a term that we, we throw over 400 years of history. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, like you're saying there, there is no, um, you know, there's a temptation to, to come up with kind of monolithic narratives and we're probably better off to not try to do it. Um, 
uh, especially in our own in our own time. Um, but Francis, I think, you know, like I said, his appeal, his power was one that was opposed to power, right? And it was antithetical to power. And I think there's a, uh, there is a universal truth there, or, or maybe I would like there to be, um, in that, and this I think is a, is a concept that holds true in the political arena and in many, in many parts of life, which is that the person who, the one person who doesn't want power is the person who you probably want in power. And the people who do want it are the people you don't want in power. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they're objective was primarily other people, right? It was humanity. It was solidarity. It was community. Um, and that message was fairly revolutionary. It was, it spread on the, on the force of its, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for here, but on the force of its kind of attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I agree that there probably isn't any way to, to, um, to find an analog to anything in, in the world right now. Well, you know what? Than, mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry to cut you off. Um, no, go ahead. But something is just jumping to mind now. This is more maybe 10 years ago, but uh, I don't know if, if you had thought of this, but I'm thinking Jack Johnson. Oh, bro. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. I was actually, oh, where was I? No, I was, I was out of the park. Just this last Sunday, I was, I was lounging, I was lamping mm-hmm. and somebody was playing Jack Johnson in the park. Wait, and wait, it, were you wearing shoes? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I walked there barefoot. It's great. And went over there and started singing banana pancakes with him. That's great. Um, yeah, we need, we need more Jack Johnsons in the world. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um... That's, uh, you know, that's, I don't have a whole lot more to say about Francis. Um, I think I was kind of surprised that there wasn't as much out there as I thought there would be in terms of people still writing and thinking about him. Um, and it's out there for sure. And there's a lot of, you know, academic writing and stuff like that, but he has, you know, he's probably calcified a little bit as, as this you know, figure who, who has his proper standing in, in the cultural memory of the world. Um, and maybe the, the appeal is one that is kind of like we've said before, one that, uh, has its greatest power over 21 year olds. Um, but at the same time, I think we keep coming back to that being a good thing, you know, that like, maybe we all need a little bit more 21 year old energy in our, in our lives. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. Uh, but I, at the same time, I also think about what we talked about last time with, with the futurists and young fascists right. and young zealots. And it's a, sure. It's a double edged sword. So this is probably the other end of that other side of that coin, um, is like the young, the young fascist versus the young ideologue. Yeah. If you can be um, directed in the right way. Right. The energy. Mm-hmm. And somebody who came to mind in rereading a little bit about Francis here was, of course, one of my heroes, one of my personal heroes, which is uh, Christopher, Christopher McCandless. <laughs> um, that's, that's, I'm half joking because that's another, you know, very much of the same aesthetic there. Uh, but, you know, kind of a modern, you know, uh, cautionary tale of like what it, what it actually looks like to, to sell all your belongings and just kind of follow your own compass. Um, just ended up dead in the bus in Alaska. So yep. we don't want to go the way of Christopher McCandless. Well, you know, just eat the right berries and you'll be fine. Right. Chris. Yeah, man. Well, um, do you have any closing thoughts? I think this is kind of a short one here. I, I didn't have quite as much gas with this as I thought I would. That's okay. Um, I, I, I was just going to ask how much 
coming back to this, say like ten years after you, you know, first encountered the material, did were you? Uh, how much more cynical do you find yourself? You know. Um. Yeah, I I don't know if it's if it's close enough to reality to even feel cynical about. Yeah. Um, like I think it does, you know, part of, of why it's attractive to some extent is that it, is that it feels almost, you know, mythic or, or, yeah. uh, fantastical in a way. Um, but when you read about it and you read about the details and like get into kind of literal accounts of his life, um, then there's something, there is something kind of energizing about this. And it reminds you of just the long sweeping fluidity of, of history and of how small and inconsequential our lives are, right? And so to me, there's that that is probably more reflective of my attitude that I have right now at, at almost 30, which is very different than when I was 21, which was, wow, I can cha- I can do something, you know, if I just if I just be a good person, it will it will have a ripple effect and change the world and, and I will be famous. Um, uh, but now it's more like you know, we, we are, we are a, a blip. We are a blink. We are a, you know, a pinprick on, you know, the mass, most massive canvas you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why not still think of people like this, right? Mm-hmm. Why not still, still imagine that you can live a life like this in some, some way, even if it doesn't do shit. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What about you? Um, yeah, actually probably I'm more endeared to it, um, than I would have been 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago, I would have been looking more for the practical, you know, how does the, how's this supposed to work? What's the strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, that's Whereas, never been my forte, but that's yeah. probably more year. No, I don't, year. I don't, and I don't, I guess I don't mean exactly the way it sounds, but just of, I know what you mean. Uh, being like you said, um, just a lot more open to something that's futile, but beautiful, right. you know, the, that right. whether or not it does anything is the last least important thing. Um, so yeah, actually exactly. probably more, more open to it now. Um, yeah. <clears throat> okay. No, it makes let a lot me, more sense. I'll give you a bear trap to step in. Compare and contrast St. Frank and Greta Thunberg. I'm just thinking because I was I was trying to think of like modern you know France, contemporary Saint examples Francis. of like individuals being held up as you know an object of hope and humanity. Oh boy, um, that's not my that's not my field, bro. Uh, you can't you can't you can't pull me into that. Um, Sorry. Yeah, I say go go Greta. Keep doing your thing. Yeah, she's yeah. she's doing fine. Um, you know Pope Francis. What about what about France? Frank, his namesake. Um, mm-hmm. who, who he's named for. Um, we don't need to get into all those things, but, um, yeah. And, and I'm hesitant here and I'm aware of in this show and I, I hope that we don't, um, you know, we don't give the impression that this is what we're trying to do is a sort of great, great man version of history, a mythology of heroes who, you know, have some special divine quality that shapes history with their heroic acts. Um, that's not what I'm trying to say. And, and I, I don't have the academic chops to, to articulate, like I said, all of the historical forces at work while Francis was alive. But the point is to emphasize, I think a sort of web and a network of power, right, that exists at the time, which is primarily the, the church, kind of feudalism, very established and sort of entrenched modes of being and modes of seeing the world that left undisturbed will remain in stasis, right? And mm-hmm. so I think we are in one of these cool moments of history, even though it's obviously terrible in many ways and um, miserable to, to have to see it play out in real time um, where, you know, the only th- things that actually 
change are radically destructive acts, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's, whether it's one that's done by, um, a person intentionally, or it's something, you know, like we have going on right now. Um, and so this, you know, not, not necessarily a domino effect, but a kind of, uh, no, yeah. just pulling one pin from the more like Jenga, you know, like yes, pulling one piece exactly from the, the Jenga stack. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think probably what it indicates if you're just getting like a meta picture of the history is that history can move really slowly and seem that it's not like it's not going anywhere for, you know, a long three or 400 years of the long dark right. ages, but there's things going on, you know, at the level of tectonic plates that all of a sudden when there's a tipping mm-hmm. point and then there's yep. a nonlinear feedback and everything changes all at once. And especially exactly. to like people's beliefs and culture, um, you know, we tend to think are eternal and permanent, but they can, they can change when they have to, when conditions are right, like all at once. And we might be at one of those points of history right now. For sure. Uh, um, yeah. That's, that's, that's another cool thing about looking at, you know, this kind of spiritual history in a way. Um, and just kind of, even just a kind of cliff notes version of these things, like I said, um, is to see the ways that, like you just said, belief systems are so in flux, right? We, we think of, we think of Christianity as a monolith, right? Or, or as a, a certain set of principles that have been, you know, the way that they have been since the religion was established. I know that's probably, you don't think that, but we can slip into that way of thinking. But until, you know, until the fifth or sixth century, there were hundreds of different permutations of what it meant to be a, a, a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Until it became, until it became the, the church of the, the church of the empire and, and the institutionalized one way of, of living the world, living life. Um, it was a pretty multifaceted thing and that, you know, changed and, and shifted. And this represented one of those, sh- those shifts, right. Where, it, where it's still, you know, the same kind of thing in maybe at its core level to some extent, but it's radically different in, in its, in the way that it's practiced or in the way that it's, it's lived. Yep. I, I'm picturing a book. Um, and I say, we go to a, a publisher and pitch the Francis option and we set it up. We mark it against rare. I'm in, yeah. I'm in, man. Actually, he came to mind today and that was, um, another maybe toe I wanted to dip or water I wanted to dip our toes into if you're willing to um with what I was kind of getting at with um in the wrong hands uh you know Francis any any person can be can be co-opted towards those kinds of ends um I'm not quite sure what you would do with Francis if you were pushing some trad right agenda if it's possible or pushing a, uh, you know, some sort of kind of heroic version of history of, mm-hmm. of Christendom, you know, wow. What, what have we lost now that we don't venerate the saints now that we don't venerate St. Francis anymore? Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that this is one of those figures who can be, who can be flipped to whichever side wants him more? Um, I think it's way less easily subverted be- because it, the emphasis is n- so much less ideological and s- so much more about practice mm-hmm. in that, you know, it, it's the order of St. Francis, right? Like they have to go bag and walk the streets, right? They, right. Yeah. It, it's a lot different than, than an ideology of withdrawal or seclusion, um, you know, which motivated a lot of other monastic movements or aesthetic movements. Right. Um, and so, I don't know, the hypocrisy would be that much more uh, patent, you know? Like, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. And Dreyer's not about to walk the streets, you know, right. asking for money. Right. So I think the closest thing you get to... Sorry, go ahead. I just think it's, it's much easier to counterfeit or to, to co-opt an ideology than a practice because, yeah, either you're doing it or you're not doing it. 
So. Right. It, it is definitely one of those things that I think you could you could pretty easily like fake in an Instagram kind of way. You know, <laughs> yeah. like um, like Francis hashtag France Francis vibes like van life, um, mm-hmm. sort of a a romanticized asceticism. Oh, the minimalists. Ah, I forgot about those guys. Um, mm-hmm. I think they probably, I wouldn't be surprised if they've got something in their masthead or their, uh, um, their creed credo about St. Francis. Um, but I think they're kind of going, they're going out of style and people are starting to, uh, you know, put shit on their coffee tables again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I, it came to mind like, 10 or 20 years ago around like the time when things were getting shuffled within, you know, the evangelical movement and pe- people were getting bored with the mega churches and stuff like that. And uh-huh. there was a little bit of, what was that dude's name? He had dreadlocks and he, you know, Shane he, Claiborne. Yeah. He was all about, you know, monastic type living and, and yeah. yeah, that was still very like, it's actually very Pentecostal in, in, in nature. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, for sure. That was definitely, um, when I was in college, that was kind of not quite at its peak, but on its down slope was like, go, you know, go sleep in, uh, under an overpass for a, yeah. for a night and come back and write a blog about it. Yeah. Right. And like, I don't know, I, I'm, I think he's a good guy and I'm sympathetic yeah you know, to anyone who, who tried it, but it, it did feel so immediately futile and transitory and doomed to failure. And I, I don't, I can't quite put my finger on why it was, I don't know. It's, it's like, yeah, I'm going to move into a communal house and, and guess what's going to happen after six months. Like everyone's right. going to hate each other and, and all of us are going to burn out and it's going to end with like 75% of the couples being divorced because it was so right. intrusive and horrible <laughs> and like, yeah. and who benefited. And one part of it is like the, um, you know, they were just as much infected with the disease of all evangelical culture of like having no coherent, um, systematic view of, or systemic view of the world or understanding of, you know, power or politics or anything like that. So, right. Which, it was fine. I mean, I think it was symptomatic of like being in a place of total powerlessness as, uh, you know, the evangelical right was truly like at the peak of its power in, mm-hmm. in terms of like romping around the middle East and, and doing it on apocalyptic religious grounds and just being, right. yeah. Like, I think that was a, a turning point for a lot of things. Um, but mm. You know, I, I just don't think there was any, I don't think it was a very coherent idea because I, I, I never read anything from it or anything like that. But like, I do remember part of this thing was like, yeah, when you're next time you're supposed to pay your taxes, like send them a letter that says I'm not paying my taxes because, you know, it's going to go fund the Iraq war and blah, 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 all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> but easily right. confused, you know, very, very confused. Um, for sure. And yeah. very American, you know, at its heart and really not, I don't know, just incoherent, I guess, but for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's very hard to imagine any kind of, any kind of model remotely like this. Um, and, and that's not, I don't think that's the point or, or in any way. No, it's, um, it was a totally different yeah, world. It's, it's looking at the, it's a totally different world, but like I said, is there some core, you know, some truth there that is like not subject to the, the, the fluid strip stream, slipstream of history, like we we're talking about there that, that can still be mind and applied. Mm-hmm. I would say probably, you know, like general things that he was doing, like this kind of relationship between 
solitude and, and engagement, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I think is, see, now I'm starting to sound like Roger. Um, I think, <laughs> I think is lost. I think we've lost our capacity, all capacity for solitude. I'm leaning very close to the mic to say that. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? That would be fine if then you weren't like, then you just weren't being an asshole to vulnerable teenagers. Sure. Yeah. That's, it's the back. Like there's side nothing wrong That's, with <laughs> that idea. Right. It's yeah. It's what's when it's in, it's a piety that is, that is obfuscating, a, a deeply, um, destructive worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking of something else. Oh, there is one person who also has a sort of mystifying power over birds. Bernie? That's right. Yes. St. Bernard. Absolutely. Oh man, what a beautiful moment that was and we can just hold it like we <laughs> like we hold on to like we hold on to our memories of St. Francis, which I'm actually looking up at a postcard right now of that painting, St. Francis preaching to the birds, which is, I think my favorite from the whole cycle mm-hmm. of the France. That's of the great, Gi- man. Giotto. That's great. I, I really love that. <laughs> Can what, you imagine how that, no, just that idea of like how it breaks the evangelical brain to like, why would you preach to a bird? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know? No, exactly. And that, that's, I, I think I, I want to emphasize that a little bit more like, and, and, I think people probably don't sit and think about that enough, you know, like, like the evangelical mindset is very much like the C.S. Lewis version of, of nature, Mm -hmm. which is like nature is a beautiful kind of reflection of, of a broken, a broken reflection that cannot be held or contained and is therefore, you know, a husk. Mm-hmm. That should be disca- discarded, um, and you know it's just something we get to go and enjoy, and kind of be in awe of. But we stop right there, right? Whereas, like this is, you know, I love it's flirting with that line that religious, you know, evangelical people are not capable or comfortable approaching, which is like a pagan, pantheistic, yeah, like ubiquity of of the presence of the divine in all things, you know, like, and that's, that's, Francis doesn't get enough credit for that, I think. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm going, I got a hot mic right now. I'm going, I'm going off, going off book here. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, it's really, yeah, yeah that's really nice. I, I, I think that drives on what you were talking about just, uh, um, a really stunning, like, embrace of the world and life. Um, exactly. And that's what it all comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess to like, to talk a little about, about the art, the, the question, question that will keep revolving around what we'll bring it up next time with the episode I have planned is like, what is the power of images and, uh, mm. and how Giotto is, you know, able to make Francis meme, you know, into the lives of people. Um, and, for sure. You know why? Yeah, why this kind of stunning idea that we're talking about right now was able to be widespread was because of the power of images. Um, yep. And Martin Luther be damned. Yep. Yeah, Luther but wasn't that bad on that. He think. wasn't that bad. No. Yeah. Um, actually, I was doing a little research on the troubadours before this, and people consider Luther a little bit of a troubadour himself. Mm-hmm. In in the, that he was inspired by a certain, just kind of freewheeling, like it was the institution that he was he was he couldn't handle. You know, it was like fuck this. Like I just gotta, we shouldn't be in these in these churches. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not no Luther uh, Luther Wren. Actually, um, <laughs> actually, you are a baptized Lutheran. So. I am a baptized Lutheran. <laughs> it's hard lips. to believe that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that's probably enough for, for now. I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface. It took a while to get into it, but um, unless you have any closing thoughts on Francis, Giotto, the Renaissance, let's say after two episodes of Renaissance content, do you feel in any way more engaged with it or like it has appeal in any way? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of shocking how little I know about Italy or the Renaissance, just um, other than it being all grouped together as one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I I really don't have any of these finer cultural or like period points or regional ideas that, you know, you're bringing into it, contextual ideas. Um, So it definitely makes me appreciate a lot more what's going on other than like I I think the only way I'd ever been taught to look at it is just sort of from a technical progress standpoint hey, you, I just look lost at how you. flat these images were and then now look at how good they are oh. in the renaissance um, and that's kind of all I've ever t- taken from it I guess um, you actually cut out for like the whole of that what you've been taught part oh you gotcha. Well, the campers heard. Um, the campers heard. That's fine. I don't need to hear it. I'll tell it to you. And I'll, I'll, hear, I'll hear it later. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. The, I guess the last thing I was going to say, think about for next time. And we, we've already brought it up a little bit, but like where the analogies are in terms of Giotto and like who – there are people in these societies, artists who could make ideas and images spread through mm-hmm. culture the way that no one else could, especially people being illiterate. And, um, right. I've kind of been dealing, struggling with the fact that like a painter's, there's no a- analog today or the analog is not direct. Like there's not nothing a painter can do today that is going to be the same as what they were doing then. No. But they're, there is quite an analogy between just, um, I mean, definitely, I know we're bracketing film, but if we ever talk about film, but the artists involved in film, concept artists and 3D artists and things like that. For sure. That, <clears throat> who do, uh, you know, work on images that really influence culture. Um, just sure. think about that for next time, but. Well, I'm definitely thinking about it. Um, pondering it. Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's definitely true. And, you know, that's, that it means we're in good hands considering that the most, the most popular films are the Marvel and Star Wars movies. Um, those are the stories that we need to tell and that people need to hear. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll, stories about good guys and bad guys. That's and, right. And de- evil and bad guys. Yep. Darkness and light, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, which is going to win? Which side do you want to be on? Ooh, which one's it going to be? That's I don't why these know. Are, yeah, these aren't PG movies we're talking about. It has ser- serious themes. Right. Um, now, I, <clears throat> the thing we'll, thing we'll talk about is I've been, I've been following a lot of new people and watching a lot of just doing deeper dives into other types of art that I haven't always looked at. And some of the most, like, unbelievable contemporary talents literally work on these movies mm-hmm. and or you know do do the art direction and um actually i was thinking about it too in terms of like hackery mm-hmm. and there's thousands of uh you know modelers and storyboarders and things like that who are of the hack variety employed by lucas studios or whatever or disney but there are also like absolute gems who would put Michelangelo to shame just in terms of the technology that they've been able to build upon. But just like Michelangelo or any of these other people are absorbed in a project that are so tied to the history and the powers that were at play at that particular point in history Mm -hmm. that after a few decades and certainly after a few centuries, the projects that they're involved in are totally incomprehensible. The way that, you know, the projects of the Counter-Reformation Renaissance artists 
can't, don't really make any sense to us today. And who's going to understand a Marvel movie in a hundred years? Nobody. It, they'll well, be, they're still going to be. They're still going to be making them. So they'll. <laughs> that's true. But you just have to have seen. I'm talking about yeah. The difference sequence. between Iron Man one and Iron Man a hundred, looking back, will be so odd because all of this great artistic talent was absorbed into completely bizarre and incomprehensible projects. <laughs> yeah. I ignore that. That. What you just described, depending on the day, can either make me groan in despair or just chuckle and just, just oh man, what a world we live in. Um, no, you're right. Um, and, you know, we do need to do a, a couple film episodes, I think, because there there are are some movies out there that are worthy of of being talked about in the way that we're talking about some of this art. Um, yeah. Iron Man 2 is really fucking good. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's probably a good one for today. It's a little short on the short side, but um, that's all right. Short yeah, episode, yeah. never hurt anybody. We're, we're good. Cool. All right. So we're, we're looking forward to the uh, Surrealists. Is that what it is? Yes, we are. Cool. Bone up on your dolly. That's my only guy that I know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Well, this has been Magic Camp, uh, a special Catholic edition. Um, it's a show about art, power, for anybody with a little bit of extra time after school. I'm Paul. I'm Ben. Catch you later. See you later, campers. Bye-bye. <laughs>